1: Right rug flooring.
2: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guest today is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Isabel Wilkerson. She's the author of Cast: The Origins of Our Discontent. It's a profound book and an instant bestseller. Wilkerson digs deep into American history as well as the history of Nazi Germany and the caste system of India to understand the ways systemic inequality is enforced in the United States. Throughout the book, Wilkerson explicitly does not use the word racism.
3: You know, one of the reasons I use the word caste and this invisible, unrecognized, unspoken hierarchy and infrastructure is that it is so profoundly embedded into you know, our history, our psyches, the ways that things work, that it doesn't have to be a single institution or actor. It's an autonomic response to changes or threats to the hierarchy as we've known it. I spent a lot of time thinking about how the word caste is used in our language, with or without the E. And so if you think about caste in a play, in which everyone has, there's a script and everyone has a place on the stage, stage left, stage right, foreground, background, and everyone knows their lines. And if you're really invested in it, you know everyone's lines because you know the entire script. And so when you have a situation in which we have all inherited this script that's been passed down through the generations, it doesn't take a single person. It's not about a single person or entity it's about the recognition that this is the way things have been and those who are deeply invested in maintaining it will do whatever it takes to keep it going so it could be any number of different entities subsets individuals anywhere along the, the hierarchy who have a vested interest in maintaining it
2: but would you say that in decades prior Would you say that organizations that clearly espoused public policy and argued for public policy that had a racially subjugating tinge to it, an ultimate result was a caste maintenance? Oh, absolutely. But but, but what I'm saying is, were those organizations more fringe years ago, like the John Birch Society, things that were ultra conservative, ultra reactionary? were much more marginalized 50 years ago. And now it's mainstream. Now you have a whole news organization where Tucker Carlson is saying the things he's saying. You know, he's, he's got advertisers. He's got a nightly show. Has it become more mainstream, that maintenance, people who espouse a maintenance of the caste system that you write of?
3: Well, the reason that I mentioned of the plateau is that as long as you're on a plateau, there's not necessarily a need for anyone to get activated. While the play is going on and everything is going, you know, it's had a very long run and everybody knows where they're supposed to be, then there's no need for anyone to necessarily to act, to take action. It's only when there is a threat, a perceived threat, to what all has happened before, to the infrastructure as we've known it. That is when more and more people can be drawn into responding to whatever is perceived as a threat. And that is how I would look at it from a caste perspective.
2: So, in the African American community, my question for a long time has always been you know, what ultimately, as a group separate from Hispanics, Latinos, Asians, the Black community, the African American community, what do you think African American people wanted? 50, 60 years ago and how that's changed. Is integration itself a quaint idea? Have Black Americans, have African Americans arrived at a place, and have they been there for a while where they're like, we don't need to be friends with you. We don't need to live with you and hang (laughs) out with you. As long as you just let us have what we need and and, and get off our back and and give us equal opportunity, is the idea of a pure racially blind integration, is that dead in this country?
3: I think that we don't even have necessarily a single African-American community. There are communities. There are people who have been in this country for longer than most Americans you might meet. Meaning, you know, slavery went on for 246 years, more than 100 years before there was the United States of America. So that means that that's one group of people who are descended from enslavement, a uh, you know, huge uh, percentage, you know, probably the majority of people uh, who would bi- be identified as Black in this country. Then we have people who have, who have immigrated here from the Caribbean and have been here for many, many decades as well. And now we have a new introduction of people who are immigrating, very large numbers of people from sub-Saharan Africa. So there's not even just one community. There's also an issue of class within the group known as african American. So there are many, many different perspectives that are pained within 40 million people who would be identified as Black or African-American in this country. So there's not one perspective, I would say, in that case. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, everyone would agree that people in our current day wish to be treated as anyone else would in this country, wish to not be over-surveilled and over-policed, would wish to to be able to go about their lives every day the way other people do without having someone intrude into their day and call the police on them for, you know, sitting at a Starbucks waiting for a friend, trying to get into one's own condo building. Those are the kind of things that have happened to people who are of African descent in this country in in just the last couple of years. I mean, just many, 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 many examples of this going on. So, I mean, I think it's safe to say that all people of African descent would love to just be able to go about their lives as everyone else, as Americans, uh, to be able to pursue their dreams as anyone else would, or just to be able to get through the day. I would say that going back to the 19, you know, to the era, of the Civil Rights Movement, which actually, it could be argued, began with the arrival of the first slave ship meaning that there has always been resistance to enslavement, always been resistance to being kept in chains. I mean, there's always been some kind of resistance. And, and what we think of as the civil rights movement, is just part of the continuum of resistance that goes back for many, many generations. You know, when you think about during slavery, there were people, the Underground Railroad, of people trying to escape. So I also think looking at the long arc of history, where we talk about progress and backlash and plateau, those are the things that have continued for as long as there's been a country, but you know, the civil rights movement, as you were speaking about, what did people want? I mean, people wanted, well, what was life like for them? At that time, during the civil rights era, 1950s and 60s, a good portion, the majority of African-Americans, many of whom were, were in the South, were not permitted to vote, not permitted to be able to just use public facilities, were segregated in every way that you can imagine. There were actually separate Bibles in court to swear to tell the truth on. There was a black Bible and an altogether separate white Bible to swear to tell the truth on in court. It was against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers together in Birmingham, for example. So. The world that people lived in, in what I call the caste system of the American South, was one of such extreme inequality and injustice and this artificial graded ranking of human value that the goal would have been to be able to be ac- seen and accepted and have all the rights and privileges of any other citizen of the United States, which they had earned through generations and generations, of course, of working for free to build this country for 246 years. So that is what they were seeking, ultimately. And they were seeking human rights as well as civil rights, to be seen and recognized as the humans that they had always been, and the citizens that they had always been.
2: I want to just get to another idea, and these are all my opinions. In the last several years, there are three primary groups that have organized politically, to varying degrees of success and using various methodologies to try to advance their cause of their human rights. The LGBTQ community, uh, women and African-Americans and uh, people of color. Now, one would argue that although none of them have come far enough, the gay community made great strides with marriage equality. and There was a lot of things that really, really, uh, you know, they, they, they had a nice, tight campaign and they pushed and they won and they prevailed. Mm-hmm. Women, I think things have gotten better for women in this country. Not enough. I mean, I think with the, the fact that we don't have an equal rights amendment in this country is appalling to me. Yeah. Do you think that the cause of African Americans in terms of their human rights has been in third place in terms of those accomplishments gaining what they wanted to and why?
3: Well, I, I can only say I can only go back to the, the work that I've done, which is to say that we have inherited a caste system. Uh, which is, you know, the arbitrary artificial ranking of human value. And it was founded on the essential belief that the colonists established themselves on top. They imported, they brought in people from Africa to form the bottom rung of that hierarchy. So we're going back to the founding of our country. Before there was the United States, there was this hierarchy. And it uh, established this bipolar infrastructure And of course, in the founding of the country, the indigenous people were, their numbers were decimated and they were driven from their lands. So this is is our inheritance as Americans. And this is so built into the infrastructure of our country that this is an enduring question that has yet to be fully resolved, even though we had in a civil rights movement and civil rights legislation of 1964, 65, and 68, what we are seeing now is an indication that you can have the laws in place, which are absolutely necessary, and a show of progress. Um, yet, you can still have what we have seen in just the last year, when it comes to video after video of you know dehumanizing effects of people who are still enforcing these assumptions and, and this this ranking of human value. We, can, we have seen people killed before our very eyes in spite of all that has gone before.
2: For you, who've achieved, I mean, it doesn't get any better for someone in your field than what you've accomplished. You have a Pulitzer Prize. You live in a pretty rarefied world, in a pretty elite world. You're an enormously successful, enormously well-respected writer. You've been given you know, one of the highest honors in your field. Do you still encounter microaggressions from people in the world you live in?
3: Oh, um, absolutely. The one that I feel most comfortable talking about is where I was actually accused of impersonating myself.
2: For people who haven't heard of this, how did this guy pull, the, how did he do this?
3: Yeah, so I had made uh, appointments with uh, several people for this one story that was a fairly harmless, you know, not controversial story at all. And everybody that I called was really excited about it, about participating. And he was one of the people that I called. And I'd done all these interviews during the course of the day. And he was the last interview of the day. And uh, when I got there, he was not there. I got to his, uh, it's a retail establishment, a small boutique. And uh, there was no one there. In the boutique at the time it was a quiet hour of the day, and the the sales clerk said, you know, he's not here. This is the manager of the boutique. And I waited for him. And then this, you know, the door opens, and they're clutching in. He's clearly recognizing that he's late for something. Uh, he's taking off his coat. He's trying to get situated. The clerk tells me to go over to him because that's the guy that I'm supposed to be interviewing. And uh, I go up to him and I introduce myself. And he said, oh, oh I, I can't talk with you now. I cannot talk with you. I'm getting ready for a very, very important meeting, very, very important interview. I don't have the time to talk with you. And I said, I I'm I'm Isabel Wilkerson. I'm I think I'm the appointment that you're here because we have this interview set up for 4:30. Uh, and he said, "Well, how do I know that? How, how do I know that you? I mean, I, I I was stunned by that because I mean, here we were. He was late. There was no one else there. And he was saying to me, "How do I know that you're who you say you are?". And I said, "I made this appointment with you. It's." Well past the time I made this appointment with you. And he said, well, let me, you know, do you have a business card? And it so happened, it's one of those things where there's, when you're in a particular, you know, uh, cast, I might say, there's no room for error. And it just so happened I didn't have any business cards. I've been out talking to people all day. I said, I don't have a business card with me, Uh, but we have this appointment. I have my notebook. I was here waiting for you. There's no one else here. We should be having this interview. And he said, well, I'll need to see some ID. So I said to him, I said, I shouldn't have to show you ID. We're already well into the time that we should be interviewing. But here's my ID. I showed it to him. And he said, uh, I showed him the driver's license. He said, you don't have anything with the New York Times on it. And I said, we are well into the time we should be doing the interview. I mean, like, we're just wasting time. Right, right, We right. could have been done with the interview by now. And he said, I'm going to have to ask you to leave because she'll be here any minute.
2: She'll be here. Yes, she'll be here any <laughs> and minute. And you should have walked out a second ago. Here she is. Let me, <laughs> let me leave and re-enter. I wish I
3: thought of that.
2: Oh, wait, wait, here I am. It's me, and my boss is on the phone. They want you to call the Times. But what's interesting to me, among a myriad of things, were there ever any consequences for him? Was he an employee of a company? Did anybody contact his employer and say, nothing ever happened to him no.
3: as a result of this charade? No. Right. No. I wrote the piece. I finished the piece, and, and I would have liked to have included him. And he very much wanted to be in it, obviously. But I wrote the piece and, and got it done, and you know, and that was it. I mean, he... I let, I've sent him a copy of the article with the business card he'd asked for.
2: Author Isabel Wilkerson. Another person who is challenging the narratives of our nation's history is Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. From the Here's the Thing archives, Stevenson talked about the
4: way civil rights history gets condensed. All we want to do when we talk about the 1940s and 50s and 60s is celebrate the civil rights movement to celebrate the progress that we made. And And freeze it there. And freeze it there. And and, and everybody gets to celebrate. There are no qualifying questions that you have to answer before you get to participate. And we've reduced it almost to this kind of three-day event where Rosa Parks gives up her seat on the first day, Dr. King leads a march on Washington on the second day, and then we pass all these laws on the third day. And it provokes me because we're ignoring the decades of damage that we did to everybody by humiliating people of color every day
2: of their lives. You can find the rest of my conversation with Brian Stevenson at heresthething.org. We talk about the need for a curriculum for all Americans to understand the history of the caste system after the break.
5: Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. We're speaking today with author Isabel Wilkerson about her best-selling book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. It feels like racial inequality in our country is by design.
3: Well, it was designed as a hierarchy that we don't often recognize because we can't see it, and that's why it's in some ways so powerful. We've accepted it for so long that we don't we don't see it because it is just the way things are. You know, I describe that, you know, the country is like an old house. And that old house, you know, you don't want to go into the basement to see what the rains have wrought after a rain. But if you don't go in and look at it, then you're not, you're not going to avoid the consequences just because you don't know what they are. You don't avoid having to deal with whatever's down there just because you happen not to have looked. It could be that it's, there's a human impulse to create hierarchy. And, you know, again, getting back to that play that I'm talking about, that script that has been passed down through the generations, it doesn't take a single individual to make problems for a society. Because if everyone has received the script, then they're acting upon that script. I am saying that each one of us has received the script and we, we may act upon it in our own ways, but the script is still there. And I think that this is a matter of you know of, of adjusting and changing and dealing with the programming that we have inherited. It's like we've all been programmed to see things in a certain way, to treat people in a certain way, to elevate those who are in who are in the dominant group, and to sublimate those who are in the subordinated group. And it's so it's so much a part of the social order of things, and it's been in place for so long that we may not even be able to see how it's acting upon ourselves. We may not be able to see how it's acting upon our society until things reach that breaking point, as they have in more recent times, you know, in our current era.
2: I want to get to one last thing while I have you, because I can't believe I've forgotten this. That is, are you a proponent of reparations?
3: Yes. I think that the Warmth of the Suns. Your other book. Yeah. The first book describes what African-Americans endured, not during slavery, not during slavery, but in the lifespan of people, actually the oldest Americans in our current era, what they endured. You know, uh, the idea of redlining and restrictive covenants that meant that African-Americans were excluded from the American dream until the 1960s, excluded from the ability to just get a mortgage like any other, uh, like white Americans were able to. That means that white Americans uh, whose parents bought homes or grandparents or great-grandparents bought homes before the 1960s were you know, unintended or may not be aware of it, but were beneficiaries of the discrimination that occurred against African Americans, the exclusion of African Americans, because they, African Americans were not permitted to participate in this wealth building, you know, part of the American dream. And so there is a way, without even having to go back to slavery, to say that African Americans have been harmed economically and that current-day Americans, you know, my, my own parents, for example, who were not able to, to get a mortgage in the regular way that other people were because they fell under that category of people who were excluded. They were African-Americans who were excluded by virtue of, of their race. And so I think that the record is very clear that this is a group that has, has endured completely different experience as they went about trying to build lives for themselves excluded from the American dream. And so therefore, of course, as other groups have have experienced uh, abuses and and atrocities and and have been harmed for that, and that is what countries do, reparations having to do with repairing harm. So I'm in favor of, of clearly that as for other groups. But I would also add that I believe what's most important is education to go along with that so that all Americans can know why it is appropriate.
2: No, we need to have instruction in this country. Human rights is something that should be taught in the core curriculum. You should be, have kids who come into school and they should learn all about human rights, related to women, related to sexuality, related to race. We should have a core course that kids are taught from a very young age about why it's just the right thing to do and why it's in your interest to allow people their, their rights. The only thing I would finish with is, beyond where the money would come from and how much money would be in a reparations program, who do you think is the best arbiters and who would be the best managers of that system, do you think?
3: See, I I appreciate you asking me that question, but I'm not equipped to answer that question. Who's a good person
2: you think that can speak about? Who has a view about reparations that you admire?
3: Well, there are many people who do, uh, who are researching this. One of them is a professor of economics at Duke University named William Darity. He's one of the people who's been working on this for a very long time. Obviously, Ta-Nehisi Coates has, you know, wrote the piece, The Case Reparations, which he very kindly referred to The Warmth of the Suns as being an inspiration for that. So there are many, many, many people working on this. And I think that they're the ones that I would defer to on this topic. I would only say, and I really want to emphasize that. In other countries, I'm thinking about Germany, where I I spent a lot of time trying to understand how they deal with their history. You know, in the middle of Berlin is this massive memorial to the Jews who were killed in the Holocaust. And it should be there, it is massive, and it forces anyone to give deep thought, reflect upon what was lost uh, in that. But it takes up a massive amount of that city center. And in spite of how large it is, it's notable that there's no sign, there's no signage, there's no exhibit explanation as to why it's there or what happened. And the reason is because everyone knows what is there. It happened to have been created by a Jewish American architect, and it's there as a memorial, and it makes a statement by its existence by saying everyone there recognizes the horror that happened, everyone recognizes the history as they should, because everyone receives an education about how and why this is necessary to honor and how and why the country got to where it was in World War II. And we do not have that, we're not on the same page here in our country about basic facts as to the causes of the Civil War and what happened after Reconstruction and what was Jim Crow and how did that that work how did we end up with the caste system, what I'm describing as a caste system of this artificial graded ranking of human value? We're not on the same page about what happened in our country, and that is what I'm saying, why it's so important as we try to understand how we got to where we are now is to understand what happened. You know, you can't fix what you can't see, and you can't repair what you don't know, and, and that's why I think it's important for us to get on the same page about what happened. You can't make progress unless you know what's happened to get us where we are.
2: I think there's hope. <laughs> I think there's hope.
3: I actually do think there's hope. Um, I've written these books so that people can have an idea of where and how we got to where we are. With that first book, when it came out, were of for the Sons, people would come up to me of all different backgrounds and would say to me, over and over and over again, I had no idea. I had no idea that this happened in our country. I had no idea. And so the goal of this is to get us on the same page about what happened in this country. Things don't make sense until you know how we got here. It's as if our country, like we're an audience that walked into a theater in the middle of a movie and we didn't catch the first half. So we see one car chasing another car and a man chasing and and someone else is stopping the man who's chasing. And we don't understand why this one man is chasing the other man. We don't understand what's happened. And we watch the rest of the movie and we still missed out on what was the essential questions about how and why this happened. And so that's what we're like. And if you've walked into the middle of a movie and you didn't catch the first half, in some ways nothing else really truly makes sense. And this is an effort to try to get us on the same page so that things will make sense, so that we will have a better understanding of why we're where we are and how we got to where we are so that we can have a better sense of what to do going forward. That's the whole goal here.
2: Well, let me just say once again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this.
3: Thank you so much.
2: That's best-selling author, Isabel Wilkerson. I wanted to follow up on this question of reparations. And as Isabel Wilkerson recommended talking to William Darity, he happens to be my next guest. He teaches public policy, African-American studies, and economics at Duke University. He and his wife, Kirsten Mullen, are the authors of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. It's a detailed case for reparations, particularly as a way to close the generational wealth gap between white, and black Americans. Darity says the reparations invoice the federal government owes descendants of enslaved people is between $10 and $12 trillion. It's a daunting price tag. However, Darity says if the federal government commits to the plan, it can find the money.
6: Well, uh, first of all, I, I don't think that increasing the deficit necessarily means you increase the debt uh and it's it's really a rise in the debt that creates a financial burden that's carried over time But you can finance projects without increasing taxes or increasing tax revenue or making a commitment to obtain additional debt in the process of engaging in the expenditure. But let's say even just as a hypothetical that they gave a trillion dollars over 10
2: years or 20 years, you got a trillion dollars, a hundred billion dollars a year that was distributed for whatever, for, as you said, institutions, scholarships, direct cash payments to... People who, I mean, this is going to be a process to identify who really is entitled to this money by your own metric. And even if you did that, you don't think we need to raise taxes in order to distribute a trillion dollars over 10 years?
6: Not necessarily. I mean, the the limit to additional federal spending is the inflation risk. And so any new expenditure program would have to be designed in such a way that it minimized the risk of high rates of inflation, uh, including this one. But uh, we proposed some ways in Chapter 13 that the program could be ad- administered Uh, in such a way that you contain the prospects of high inflation, including uh, what you just mentioned, which is the idea of distributing the payments over a a period of years rather than making the payments take place all at once. Uh, But we're also concerned about creating a new wealth position for black Americans that's comparable to the wealth position that's held by white Americans, where the average white household has $800,000 more in net worth than the average black household. And and we argue in the book that that's a consequence of uh, the cumulative intergenerational effects of policies that have promoted white Wealth accumulation at the expense of black wealth accumulation, and so uh, you know we could distribute that that set of funds over the course of a decade. We could also uh, distribute the funds in such a way that we create trust accounts or endowments where the full amounts are not spent overnight or instantly by the individual recipients. So there are ways to contain the inflation risk. Now the question becomes:
2: You know as well as I do that the knee-jerk response you always get from people is almost kind of a statute of limitations bailout. You know, they kind of sit there and they go, hey, man, I didn't own any slaves. And yet you and I, I mean, you maintain, I think, and I'll let you speak to this, this idea that the whole country bears the response, the, the nation itself is where it is today. And as the direct result, that bears a responsibility as a country to pay this amount of money, correct?
6: Yes, that's precisely right. Our position is that the United States government is the culpable party because it maintained the legal and authority framework that permitted these atrocities to take place. And in many instances actually supported the execution of these, these atrocities. And so, yes, it is the United States government that bears the responsibility on behalf of the nation as a whole for meeting the reparations bill. Uh, this comes into full focus when we start thinking about the origins of the racial wealth disparity that exists in the United States today. And and that kind of disparity actually begins uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, when the formerly uh, enslaved persons were promised 40-acre land grants in the form of restitution, and that promise was not met. When at the same time, The United States government, through the Homestead Acts, was providing 1.5 million white families with access to 160-acre land grants in the western part of the United States and land that was appropriated from the native population. Uh, This was a settler-colonialist project, straight up. But the effects of that were to create a situation in which Black Americans start with no stake, no grub stake, in American society. They have to build wealth entirely independently after being subjected to many, many years of bondage. And white Americans get what is essentially a governmental handout in the form of land that provides them with a foundation for intergenerational wealth. From
2: the Homestead Act. Yeah. yeah. Now, in Chapter 13, a program Of black reparations, you enumerate a a handful of different methods by which where the money would be accessed. You talk about the wealth of the country and the percentage of the population. On the most simple terms, that's African American. If it's thirteen percent, so they're entitled to thirteen percent of that, uh, you know, wealth of the country. Which metric that you reference in the book are you the most in favor of? What do you think is the calculation, and what do you think is the best way to get the money out of the Congress?
6: So the thing that we settle on as the metric for dictating the actual amount of the reparations payment is elimination of the racial wealth differential in the United States uh, by increasing uh, the black asset position until there is no longer any significant difference between average black and white household wealth. Uh, and that would require an expenditure we estimate in the vicinity of 10 to 12 trillion dollars. So that would be the basic amount that would be required to actually accomplish the goals of a reparations project.
2: Right now, the African American population in the United States is what would you say about 40 million?
6: I, w- I would say that the uh, African-American population that is descended from persons who were enslaved in the United States is about 40 million people. So, so 40 million. Do you have much
2: knowledge as to how much money the German government had to transfer even to the state of Israel? Because you mentioned not only just direct payments to people, but to institutions as well. What What, what was the bill that was handled by the German government, do you know?
6: As far as I understand, the German government, as well as, interestingly enough, the United States government, which is not a culpable party in that situation, are still making payments, and uh, they are running into the vicinity of billions and billions of U.S. dollars. I think at the outset, when the German government first started this process, it was running into the low billions Uh, In the 1940s, the late 1940s. So the U.S. government is still paying into a program? The U.S. government is paying into a program to provide restitution for U.S. citizens who were victims of the Holocaust and their descendants. How long has that been going on? Uh, I think that was enacted within the past 10 years. How much money
2: does is that, is that program spending US dollars?
6: I, I'm not certain about the exact amount of money on that program. I will say this that you know progressively over time with respect to the uh, Holocaust payments, there's been an increase in the number of individuals who are identified as being eligible for payments. So it has expanded particularly to the descendants of the folks who were the direct victims in such a way that it actually includes, I believe, not only sons and daughters, but nieces and nephews. So it really has become a more expansive program in terms of treating the ramifications of the harm. The United States, to
2: me, seems like a country that they do the right thing Uh, not all the time, but very often they do the right thing, only when it's absolutely necessary. (laughs) As my friend who was a professor at uh, NYU Law School, he had a great quote. He said, when the Supreme Court ruled in the Brown versus Board of Education decision, they didn't wake up that morning and have any new information. They woke up that morning and they knew the timing was right, that they had to do this, that the country absolutely demanded and was ready for this change. Now, what do you think is the foundation, if you will, of selling this to the American people? How would you expect that to work in the COVID-ravaged and financially limping United States of today?
6: So, I, I mean, I think it's critical, again, that, uh, that I emphasize that I don't believe that the United States is crippled in terms of its capacity to finance anything new. But it has to structure those financing programs in a sensible way so that it mitigates the risk of inflation. I think that we should not be mystified or paralyzed as a consequence of the United States having uh, accumulated a significant amount of debt already, uh, because we don't have to continue to fund new programs by accumulating additional debt. So I think we should just proceed to do the right thing. Now, what would it take to persuade the American public at large that this is the right thing to do? There is evidence of a substantial sea change in American attitudes about the legitimacy and the desirability of a reparations plan for Black Americans, which would have the effect of finally giving Black Americans the material conditions for full citizenship. Their are grounds for optimism because uh, in a survey that was done by Michael Dawson and Ravana Popoff, two researchers at the University of Chicago, The beginning of this century, year 2000, they found that 4% of white Americans were in favor of reparations for uh, black Americans. That's F O U R 4. But about 15 or 16 months ago, a survey indicated that about 15% of white Americans were now in favor of reparations. And the most recent survey that I'm aware of, one that was conducted by the organization Civics in June, indicated, and I'm not sure, you know how much confidence I have in this number, but it indicated that 39% of white Americans are now in favor of reparations for black Americans. So even if that's off by nine percentage points, it still would represent a doubling of the figure that we had uh, 15 or 16 months ago. So I'm, I'm not sure if this is a permanent change. I'm not sure if we can make it a permanent change, but it sounds like the momentum is moving in the right direction.
2: This is Here's the Thing. I'm Alec Baldwin, and I'm talking to Duke University Professor William Darity about reparations. If you like Here's the Thing, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend. You can subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After the break, we'll talk about how, according to Darity's proposal, the federal government could determine who is eligible to receive reparations. William Darity teaches economics at Duke University and has become a leading advocate for reparations. He mentioned other cases where reparations have been paid here in the U.S. and in Germany. I asked if he has any concern about other historically marginalized groups, like women, also coming forward to make a case for reparations too.
6: Actually, uh, no. Uh, We encourage whichever group thinks they have a claim for a grievous injustice to come forward and work on and present their claim. Uh, Just as we have in our book, we encourage other folks who think that they, they have a legitimate claim to craft their own narrative about why such a claim should be met. I think it's really interesting that in the process of the provision of reparations for Japanese Americans, uh, in the process of the provision of reparations to the families that lost loved ones in the 911 attacks, they received significant federal compensation, and the U.S. government was not the culpable party in that instance either. Mm-hmm. But in in those cases, I think there was some concern about future claims being made by other groups, but this was not something that proved to be an obstacle to actually executing the project. So. Uh, yeah, it may well be the case that there's, uh, I mean, the Native American population has a strong case that I think is predicated on sovereignty as opposed to the Black American case, which is focused on citizenship. But uh, certainly there's a case to be made there. And uh, as far as we're concerned, we welcome others to pursue their own case. We're just tired of black, the Black American case being consistently pushed to the back of the bus.
2: Now, in October... The governor of California signed a bill that will develop proposals on paying out reparations to the descendants of the enslaved who live there now. Similar plans are underway in Rhode Island, North Carolina, and elsewhere. Now, some would suggest that's a good first step. You believe otherwise, correct?
6: Yeah, I I certainly believe that states and municipalities should establish what might be called racial equity task forces. And I certainly believe that they should address the scope of ongoing or sustained discriminatory practices in their their communities. But I don't think that they should call the actions that they take reparations. I think that in the context of the arguments we make in From Here to Equality, we are concerned that the concept of reparations has a certain proprietariness that's appropriate to the type of project that we describe. In particular, if you were to take all of the funds that the state and local governments spend in their budgets from a year ago, it would amount to $3.1 trillion. That's the total for all purposes. If we have a reparations bill of 10 to $12 trillion, there's no way that individually or collectively our state and local governments can actually meet the bill. And so uh, in addition to the fact that the federal government is the culpable party, it is also the federal government that has the practical capacity to actually fulfill the requirements of a reparations plan. And so as a consequence, I think that as admirable as any local efforts are for atonement or for change with respect to discriminatory practices within their states, these things should not be called reparations. When you look at the world and you look at history, is there a model for what you want to do that you can point to? Well, from our perspective, the model is uh, that's relevant to the United States experience, the model that's most relevant is is the Japanese-American reparations project. Is it possible to say that it was effective? That's much harder to do because uh, the individual recipients were not followed. Nobody uh, was concerned about making some type of judgment about how they might use the money.
2: Now, you make mention, you said, we advanced two criteria to determine eligibility for a Black reparations program. First, U.S. citizens would need to establish that they had at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the united states after the formation of the republic second they would have to prove that they self-identified as black negro afro-american or african-american at least 12 years before the enactment of the reparations program or the establishment of a congressional or presidential commission quote to study and develop reparations for african-americans unquote whichever comes first does such a thing exist now
6: no not to no. my knowledge yeah. Right. Uh, Yeah. So the idea is that we wouldn't want people to have to bear a significant financial burden to establish their eligibility. And since one of the criteria uh, for eligibility is demonstrating that you have at least one ancestor that was enslaved in the United States, we could have uh, the federal government provide that investigation as a service to individuals.
2: To me, the genealogical component in order for it to be really, really helpful and be effective is another thing you gotta build out in this operation. Yep. This is a this is a big operation. Yep. To identify who gets the money.
6: Well well, I mean, this is something that is a is a debt that is overdue for hundred and fifty five years and it's a debt that now is owed to forty million people. So yes, it's a substantial operation. I mean, if if, if the debt had been met in eighteen sixty five, it would have involved the allocation of approximately, on the low end estimate, of about 40 million acres of land to the four million newly emancipated Americans. And that, that was not something that was done. Today, we're now talking about 40 million people. It doesn't mean that you would have solved every problem. I, I think there's a quotation that we provide in the text from Malcolm X that kind of captures the scope of the issue, where uh, Malcolm X talks about having a a knife plunged into his back nine inches. And he makes a distinction between pulling the knife out and healing the wound. From our perspective, reparations is a matter of healing the wound. But there's a host of steps that need to be taken to make sure that the knife is pulled out and that it stays out. And those are steps that do not involve necessarily the types of payments that we're talking about. But the types of payments we're talking about are essential, and they would have to take place for the purposes of really altering the framework, the substance, and the morality of this society in such a way that we really truly have an inclusive democracy, something we've never actually had.
2: Thank you very much for taking time to do this with us. Best of luck with your next book. Thanks very much. William Darity teaches at Duke University and is the co-author with his wife, Kirsten Mullen, of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo and Kerry Donahue. Our editor is Zach McNeese and our engineer is Frank Imperial. Special thanks to Sarah Avery and Justin Wright. Our theme song is by Miles Davis. If you like Here's the Thing, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend. You can subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.